The Parent-Teacher Conference Podcast is sponsored by FanSchool. Parents, are you finding it difficult to see your child's work since it's all digital? Teachers, are your digital assignments getting lost in the black hole of a digital folder? Can I suggest a solution? FanSchool. FanSchool is a safe and social learning network where students own and share their learning. Think of FanSchool as a digital bulletin board for your students' work. Take a look. Go to fan.school today. That is fan.school. And imagine what your classroom space will look like on FanSchool. In the school district my daughters attend, they decided to eliminate the lowest level English classes at high school. The classes that tend to have kids who aren't as academic minded or even kids who need the support of slower pacing, a little less difficulty on the reading level. I mean, and let's be honest, it was also for kids who have learning disabilities especially in the area of reading. The reason given for this by the superintendent at a Board of Education meeting was there were too many minority students populating those classes. And although I would definitely stand against any school district or teacher who is preventing a student a placement in a higher level course due to their skin color, I'm equally as concerned for the elimination of that lower level course for any student who really needed the support, the pacing that was found there to be successful. Because that is equity, giving each child what they need. And although eliminating that lower level course put all students, including minority students, into the higher level course, that may look good for the school, but did you do good? for the student. Welcome to your parent-teacher conference, where a 24-7 parent and full-time teacher discusses issues and concerns from both points of view in an attempt to bridge the gap for the sake of kids. So relax, grab a coffee or other comfort drink, and let's talk about it. Hello and welcome to your parent-teacher conference. This is Coach Cullen, your host, and this is the second episode of My Colorblind Family. In the first episode, if you haven't listened to it, we discussed how for years after the Civil Rights Movement, we were told that we need to treat people as if we were colorblind. How that changed and how some today are stating that being colorblind is a negative, it is not helpful, And even people have declared it as indicative of your racism. And maybe you're listening today because you experienced this. You've said that your goal is to be colorblind, not to see race. And somebody has shamed you or has put you down and you didn't know what you could say in response. There's nothing wrong in saying what you believe. And squelching dialogue and then even going to the extreme of assuming the worst in someone for holding a view you don't agree with doesn't help 
anyone. It doesn't help our society. So today on this second episode, I plan to get a little more personal in discussing my family. For those of you who are just listening for the first time, my wife and I, who are both white, adopted two biracial daughters over a decade ago, and we love them dearly. So that's why this topic is very close to our hearts. I remember telling a teacher friend and his student teacher one day that if one of my daughter's teachers thought it was incumbent on them to plant seeds of doubt by questioning the motives of why my wife and I adopted two biracial children, that teacher would have hell to pay. And I think as a parent, even if you disagree with me on this topic, I think you can respect me for defending the love and unity of my family. I love my wife and both of my daughters deeply. And I'm not going to allow someone to wreak havoc and cause division in my family because they think they know what's best for us. Or should I say, what's best for my daughters when they don't know my wife and I and they don't know my daughters. So if this topic interests you, I hope that you continue listening. Not only will I discuss my family, but I also will discuss recent current events that will hopefully help you to better understand where I'm coming from. Maybe you start listening to this because you absolutely think I'm wrong. And thank you for listening. I hope that by listening, you'll gain a little more knowledge into why some people are standing against this move to kind of eradicate the concept of colorblindness. I mean, I've done the same thing myself. I, I mean, I've read How to Be an Anti-Racist. I've read White Fragility. I figure those are the two big books. I don't have time to read tons of books. I've also dialogued with people who disagree with me, and I believe that's healthy. I would encourage you to listen on. And if you agree with me, and you or you know of somebody who may need to hear this or give be given another perspective, please feel free to share this podcast with friends, post it on Facebook, retweet it. Let's grow the conversation. So I hope you appreciate part two of my colorblind family. Now, something that people have warned me about when I say that I'm raising my children to be colorblind, that we're a colorblind family, is they say, you know, your daughter's experience in life as children of color is going to be greatly different than your experience of life in life. And my response to that is, their experience in life is going to be very different even if they were white. I came of age in the late 20th century. They came of age in the early 21st century. I grew up in a blue-collar town right at the beginning of suburbia, very close to urban areas. My daughters grew up their younger years in a rural area, and now we live at the end of suburbia right as it's becoming more rural. So no matter what, Their experience in life, especially the time one, is going to be vastly different than when I grew up. And in those times, like I always tell them, you're going to face challenges. Everybody does. And some of those challenges are going to be coming from people who aren't going to treat you too well. Are some people going to be 
treating them less than what they deserve because of the color of their skin? Probably. But I don't want them feeling like they're always a victim. I don't want them feeling like they have no efficacy because that's just not true. Because the people we look up to in life aren't the people who have pity parties for themselves. The people we look up to are those who have overcome the biggest obstacles, the biggest challenges. And that's what my hope is for my daughters. So what do I tell my daughters about people who want to judge them based on the color of their skin? Avoid those people. There are so many more people who would love your company and really don't care about the color of your skin. The reality is that the majority of the people who know our family embrace us. All of us. And those people who are embracing us are from different races, ethnic groups, socioeconomic status. So if we're going to talk about the experiences my daughters are having, the experience is this, that people can be colorblind and treat you as colorblind. It's not a reality where that word has any hindrance to them getting friends. Now, people who embrace the anti-racist teachings of people such as Dr. Kendi, who wrote the best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, that was very critical of the term colorblind, would say that I'm raising my daughters in white culture, that I'm denying them an opportunity to live out their black culture. I don't see it as living out these monoliths that we want to create. White culture, black culture, even we break it down to ethnic groups, Italian culture, Irish culture. Now, when I was growing up, we were told not to stereotype. But it looks like we're heading back in that direction again. We're going to stereotype people based on what we say they should behave like. Why do we feel comfortable putting people in those boxes? And when they behave outside of that box that we've created, how they should behave, the proper quote-unquote culture, we blast them as being traitors to the culture. Do you want to know what culture my wife and I are raising our daughters in? First, we're raising them in our Christian faith. We're raising them to know that their value comes from the fact that they are created in the image of God and that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners and doing wrong, Christ died for us. We turn and see the very best in our parents and what our parents did to help raise us to be the parents we are today to our daughters. We are raising them to be Cullens. And I've had people who say, when I say things like this, now, we're not talking about you and your wife are doing a great job. But by saying you're colorblind, other people who aren't like you and your wife and the job you're doing raising these two beautiful biracial children, they'll get the wrong impression and they're going to use it against your own daughters. For a lot of people who've embraced the anti-racist philosophy, it's easy to paint people who question it with a broad brush, as if they're wrong. Or as Kendi said, if you declare you're colorblind, you're a white supremacist. It's easy until you butt up against somebody 
who will say, that's wrong. You can say you're colorblind and you can teach your children to be colorblind and your family has to be colorblind in order for it to work. What they butt up against is my family's reality. They realize these parents are good people and they're treating their daughters and raising them really well. And what happens in their minds is there becomes a disconnect between the philosophies that they're hearing maybe in a college course, reading in a book like Dr. Kendi's or Robin DiAngelo, and the reality of the people in front of them, of a multiracial family who puts the color of their skin away and love each other. And I do believe that most people who reach out to me who say I should not be teaching my daughters to be colorblind, that I should be teaching them to follow the thoughts of people like Dr. Kendi and Dr. D'Angelo, who wrote the book White Fragility, are genuine. They truly believe that what Dr. Kendi and Dr. D'Angelo are saying is true. And I believe they're saying it for, the, for my best and my family's best. I truly do. But sometimes it tends to be like a Christian evangelist. They have the words of truth from the Gospels of St. Kendi and St. D'Angelo and others like them. And you need to place your faith in anti-racism. If not, you could be cast out into the utter darkness. But there are some who have embraced this faith who take it to its most radical conclusions. As if the reason why my wife and I had adopted biracial children at all is because we have this need to be white saviors. And that can't be anything further from the truth. We just wanted to have children. If you don't believe me on this, let me share for you a story that happened recently from when I am creating this podcast. There was a LA councilwoman. In fact, she was the first Latina to serve as president of LA City Council. Her name was Nuri Martinez. And she was caught recently in a taped conversation talking about another council member's son. His name is Councilmember Bonin. And he and his husband adopted a black child. And I think he's about two years old. And this is what Councilwoman Martinez said about this family, this multiracial family. I guess Councilman Bonin and his son were on a float during the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Parade. And Councilwoman Martinez was caught on tape saying that the boy was, quote, bouncing off the effing walls, end quote. And that the councilman treated his black son like a, quote, an accessory, end quote. Then Martinez says this, quote, they're raising him like a little white kid. They're raising him like a little white kid. Being an accessory, being raised like a little white kid, I don't think that's what Councilman Bonin is thinking. I think he believes he's raising his son, just like 
I'm raising my daughters, just like any other parents would do, just that our kids are adopted. But the fact that Councilwoman Martinez says out loud what at times is being proposed in books like White Fragility and How to Be an Anti-Racist is the scary part. I mean, that's part of the reason why I don't like that rhetoric. I don't want somebody teaching my children they should be suspect about their own parents because of our skin color. I mean, we've worked really hard to tell them they shouldn't be making judgments about people based on their skin color. And in a sense, the councilwoman and other people like her are making judgments about white people based on our skin color. Both ways, it's wrong. That's why I teach my children to be colorblind. So some of you might be thinking, well then, why did you and your wife, who are both white, adopt biracial children? Well, I was hesitant, and let me explain why. When my wife and I bought our first house, we bought it in a very rural area of New Jersey because even though it made our commutes longer to work, we got a bigger house with more land, cheaper, and lower taxes because we bought out in a more rural area. And we could live with the distance. What we didn't realize was that the Ku Klux Klan was active the next town over. And I'm sure their hatred overspilled town boundaries. Now, if you don't believe me that into the 21st century in a northern state like New Jersey, the Klan could be active, pause the podcast and search for Oxford, New Jersey, KKK. And you're going to be shocked what you'll find there. If you look at images, you'll see a bunch of robed men under the town sign. And it wasn't a prank. They were taking that picture because I believe in the late 90s, they adopted part of a state highway that ran through the town. And there are pictures of the Klan cleaning up the roadside, I guess as a community service. What I also learned was that up until the early 2000s, there's this one light in that town. Like in their little downtown area, it's tiny. But at that light, up until the early 2000s, the Klan would go up to stop cars and hand out their literature. And that was why I was hesitant. I did question what would life be like for a child who's biracial or non-white. Well, what happened, of course, is God works in funny ways. And my wife received a phone call from a friend of ours who had received a phone call herself. Now, she had adopted previously. And so this friend reached out to her and said, Hey, I know somebody who would like to give up their child for adoption. And she and her husband thought of us because we were waiting for a child. We couldn't have children. We were infertile. And we really wanted children. And now here are our friends presenting an opportunity to adopt a child. But she was going to be biracial. And I remember thinking and praying, God, you're putting this little girl in our lives and I will defend her against any verbal or physical attack that anyone in this area would want to put on her and our family. 
it's obvious that you want her as part of our lives and you will give us the strength to deal with any racism that comes our way. And when we pursued the adoption of a second child, we were selected by a birth mom who was delivering another biracial little girl. And we thought that was a really good thing for our family because now our oldest daughter could never think to herself or be told that her parents really wanted a white child. She could be confident in knowing, no, your parents couldn't have children biologically. And when they held you for the first time, they didn't see a white baby or a black baby. They saw their child who they would shower love on and felt so blessed to be your parents. So did our family face any discrimination living in that area? I really don't know. I mean, to our faces, absolutely not. And you know, my oldest daughter, my youngest daughter was a little too young for school. So we were really seeing this through the eyes of our oldest daughter when she went to the school. At first she was one of three children of color in her class at a very small school. By the time we moved, which would be in the middle of second grade, she was the only child of color. And she was invited to birthday parties. She had a very close friend and they were true buddies to the point that when we moved, they remained close friends until they moved out of state. But there was one incident in second grade that one of her teachers relayed to us. So my daughter, I guess, was in one group and there was another group with a little boy who proclaimed to his group members, I don't like people with dark skin. Even the teacher told us it was obvious who the boy was talking about because my daughter was the only child with dark skin in the classroom. And as the teacher said, there was nothing in our daughter for him to ever say that. It wasn't that she was a mean little girl or aggressive. In fact, if anything, we were always told our daughter was a shy, quiet little girl who, when she did interact with people, was always gracious and kind to them, including this little boy. But sadly, someone was teaching him that you judge people, you judge the content of their character based on their skin color. We moved with our family to a town with a bit more racial and ethnic diversity. And my daughter's physical traits didn't stand out as much. Her skin color, her hair, there are other kids in a class just like her. She began to make new friends and one of those friends told her one day, and she was a child of color herself, after realizing that both of our daughter's parents were both white, she said to our daughter, I feel really bad for you that you don't live with a black family. Although that statement wasn't vile like what the little boy said in the group project back at the old school, and I don't think the little girl was realizing the ramifications of what she was saying, but she was doing no different than the boy in terms of judging the quality of my daughter's life based on the fact that my wife and I were white. Don't get me wrong, I believe that my daughter could have been adopted by a black family or a family of color and had an amazing life. But my daughter's life and her family life shouldn't be judged good or bad or even incomplete 
because she doesn't share the same tone of melanin as my wife and I. And as a teacher, I need to be honest. When I hear people saying that schools, that teachers need more anti-racist training or culture-responsive training or humility training, and then they share a few incidents that quote-unquote prove that there are systemic problems of racism or whatever ism you want to say throughout the school district. I always go back to this. Well, deal with the individuals in those situations. If you truly believe that these individuals are being racist, then go after them as individuals. And yes, if the mountain of evidence is there, that you can show it to cross the board in every class, in almost every classroom, and every teacher, then maybe they do need some training. But at times it seems like an indictment against a whole bunch of people who are trying to do it right. So why don't we go after the individuals? Why do we keep it so nebulous and blame everyone? Because it's easier. It's like when people tell me that my wife and I are doing it right, but everybody else is doing it wrong when we're raising our daughters. It's like strength in numbers in reverse. It allows people to feel, okay, I'll do this training, not because I need it, but because he and she needs it. Rather than confronting the individual that's being charged with these acts of racism, who may be guilty as charged, or you'll discover that it was all a misunderstanding, because that's a possibility too. So instead, we indict everyone so they can experience collective guilt. And that's a lot neater than to deal with the messy situation of investigating each individual circumstance. But that's the just thing to do. That's justice. Giving each individual what they deserve, good or bad. Indicting everyone is unjust. One of the things I struggled with in Dr. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, had nothing to do with race. It dealt with sexism. It dealt with the husband and wife relationship. Throughout the book, he praised both of his parents. And then in his chapter on gender, he decides to throw his dad under the bus in order to make a point. He writes, quote, Dad often joked at church about Ma being the CFO of the family. While other patriarchal men laughed, Dad was serious. She was. And reading the pages, it seemed like his mom and dad had a great relationship. They worked well together. They were a team. They each had a sphere of influence. They each had an area of family life that they took leadership of. And in this case, it looks like the mother took leadership in the financial dealings of the family. And even in the statement, while other patriarchal men laughed, dad was serious about his wife being the CFO... I took away that his dad was comfortable and would defend how he and his wife were running their family. It seems to be everything you would want with an equal status between men and women, which I would think that that was the point of the book. It would show here is a husband and wife that one doesn't feel superior over the other, but they're working together to make a marriage, to make a family work. Like an example you should exemplify. But in the very next sentence, Kendi dashes all of that. He says, quote, At other times, Dad's sexist ideas demanded he lead, and Ma's sexist ideas submitted. She would call him the head of the household. He would accept the calling. Two sentences before, 
Kendi refers to his, or actually refers to his dad saying about his mom, she is the CFO. So I take that as he is submitting to her authority on financial matters. In a following sentence now, he's saying that his mother submits to his father as the head of the household, and he doesn't really define what that means. Almost as if he wants the cloudiness to influence the reader that whatever it means, it isn't good, and it's definitely sexist. And this is where Dr. Kendi lost me. The way I read it, that whenever his mom took a leadership role over his father, that was always going to be unquestionably good. But whenever the dad would take a leadership role over the mom, it would always be questioned. And it would always be bad. And it would always be sexist. He was judging his father based on the fact that he was male. And with this idea that his father will always be male, he'll always be suspect, I take it to the rest of his book. I'll always be white, I'll always be suspect. Even if I follow Dr. Kendi's teachings on how to be an anti-racist, there is no redemption. Even if you follow his teaching, you will always be suspect. And then I take this to the two incidents I talked about earlier. Dr. Kendi is being no different than that little boy who proclaimed he didn't like children because of their skin tone and there was nothing my daughter and children like her could do to change it. Anything she did to be polite to him, to be nice to him, to be kind to him would always be seen as inferior. And it was no different than what the little girl said to my daughter when she wished she was with a black family instead of a white family. She felt bad for her. The love and care my wife and I were showing our daughter was irrelevant because we didn't have the right skin color. And that's what it comes down to for my wife and I. We want you to judge our family as you would any other family. We don't want you to judge us based on any of the colors of our skin. We want you to judge us by the content of our character. And it just so happened the week I was creating this episode, a question was asked to Tampa Bay Buccaneers head coach Todd Bowles. He, his team was getting ready to face off against the Pittsburgh Steelers and their Super Bowl winning head coach Mike Tomlin. So you have two Super Bowl winning head coaches going face to face and a reporter in the weekly interviews asked Todd Bowles what his relationship was like with Mike Tomlin because they're both black. And here is what Bowles said, quote, I have a very good relationship with Tomlin. We don't look at what color we are when we coached against each other. We just know each other. He was also asked about the hiring of Steve Wilkes, another black man, to take the reins of the Carolina Panthers. And Bowles said this, I have a lot of very good white friends that coach in this league as well. As far as us coaching against each other, I think it's normal. Wilkes got the opportunity to do a good job. Hopefully he does it. And we coach ball. We don't look at color. Another question came from a reporter asking about, quote unquote, you guys being an inspiration to other young black coaches, to which Bowles responded this. When you say you see you guys and look like them and grow up like them, that means we're oddballs to begin with. 
I think the minute you guys stop making a big deal about it, everybody else will as well. Coach Bowles has just preached colorblindness. He does not want to be seen as a great black coach. He does not want to be seen coaching against another great black coach. He wants to be seen as a great coach coaching against another great coach. And what makes you a great coach is not defined by the color of your skin. If you've listened to this and you're saying to yourself, wow, this guy is truly a racist, I can't do anything to help you. You are always going to think the worst of people because they have contrary views to what you hold. I also know I have two family members, two people of color, that will defend me against that charge. If you've listened with an open mind and you said to yourself, you know, I've heard the words of Robin DiAngelo. I've read Right Fragility. I've read How to Be an Anti-Racist. I've had training in classrooms. But some of the things that I may have said today make sense. Where else can you turn? Can I suggest two people to listen to? One is a podcast called The Glenn Lowry Show. Dr. Lowry is an economics professor at Brown University. And on Fridays, unusually on Fridays, he has another professor. And his name is John McWhorter. Dr. McWhorter is a linguist professor at Columbia University. And they talk about their concerns about the ideology that is stemming from people like Robin DiAngelo and Dr. Kendi. In fact, Dr. McWhorter wrote a book within the last year called Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. In the pages of that book, McWhorter presents the efficacy of the anti-racist view from the perspective of a black American. Now, some people may dismiss him as a black traitor, but again, you're judging him on the color of his skin rather than the content of his argument. And for me, I don't have the luxury of virtue signaling. I have been given the responsibility to raise my daughters to be the best people they can be by their birth mothers. A responsibility I hold sacred. And I believe it's wrong for my daughters to think that they should be receiving less than what they're due or more than what they've earned based on the color of their skin. And I'm not going to respect anyone who would lead my daughters to question how my wife and I are raising them based on the color of our skin. Judging inner motives based on outer appearance is wrong. And I don't want my family to be seen as a good family based on the color of our skins or the diversity we have. I want our family to be judged as a good family because we're good people. Being colorblind is just what my family is. I don't love my black daughters. I love my daughters and I treat them no differently than if they were biologically mine. My wife and I teach our daughters that the color of their skin is an external thing and at the same time express to them that their external color is beautiful and that we love others because we are all made in the image of God and he loves us. If we treat someone unjustly based on their skin color, we're wrong. 
and need to seek forgiveness. And if people choose to judge us based on our skin color, we're going to dismiss what they have to say and move on. Because we know that the vast majority of people accept us and has nothing to do with the color of our skin. They have made our skin color difference a moot point. And when I look at my daughter's friends, I see the menageries of racial and ethnic differences among them. And I think to myself, my daughters are doing an awesome job expanding our family's lessons of being colorblind to everyone they come in contact with. We live in a world of differences. And being colorblind doesn't mean you don't stand up when you see injustice based on those differences. But it's the realization that if all you focus on is what divides us, all that you accomplish is division. It's at the very root of the word. No one in my family shares any DNA with each other. Physiologically, we are four different people. We have different hair color, different eye color, and different skin colors. But despite those differences, we focus on the things that unite us. The fact that we love, care, and support one another. Now, instead of following the latest trend on how we should be treating one another, it would be best to follow the timeless wisdom given to us in the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's what being colorblind is all about, Charlie Brown. Thank you for joining me on the Parent Teacher Conference podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this podcast with friends. They can be teachers, they can be parents, they can be somebody who's just interested in education and parenting. If you have a comment, a question, or an idea for a future topic, please feel free to reach out to me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. Remember, a good teacher cares deeply for their students, but good parents love those students, their children, deeply. <laughs>